Coming to you from the Broad Street Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike Live, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, or life. And this week we're on the road as part of the book tour for Finding God in the Waves, my new book. Today we're in Columbus. On October 18th, we'll be in Atlanta, Dunwoody, Georgia. We'll be in Chicago for the Liturgist Gathering on October 21st. The Clergy Gathering in Fruitland Park, Florida on October 25th. We'll be in Kansas November 2nd, Savannah November 6th. We'll be in Los Angeles for three dates in a row, November 11th, 12th, and 13th. Portland November 20th, Tacoma, Seattle November 21st, Thomasville, Georgia on November 26th, and on November 30th we'll be in Boston. So if you'd like to see me on the road, it'd be a lot of fun. Go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. But enough about that, we've got a show to do, so let's get it started. Hi, Science Mike. I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. And I have a question about Sabbath practices Mm. from the perspective of science. Mm -hmm. So what are the most useful things from like a neurological standpoint as far as Sabbath? I can think of things like unplugging from technology, taking time to play, meditating. But just how would you structure that as far as like a rhythm that is restful and regenerating for in in a useful way? Really good question. Thank you. Uh, first of all, scientifically speaking, one out of seven days is not enough Sabbath. So we're speaking of a biblical principle here, especially a Hebrew Bible principle, in that typically on Saturday was the historic day, although uh, the modern church has moved it to Sunday um, for all sorts of cultural reasons. There was a day of the week where you can't work. Now, what's funny about the Sabbath is it became like so legalistic that people would freak out about whether they were working on the Sabbath or not and have like really complicated interpretations of what that meant. So the Sabbath became, for many people, stressful. Jesus seemed to get pretty worked up about that. So as Christians, I think we should take some liberty that and understand that uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath made for man. But... They did not have iPhones or Android devices at the time those scriptures were written. And we live in an incredibly distracted culture, and it turns out that is awful for your brain. It is truly, truly terrible. So you have this uh, anticipatory network that searches for validation from your phone and your brain. Uh, every time you hear the little notification, or even worse, the silent mm, you're conditioned to expect a potential social reward. And by the way, you're a social mammal. You're actually the most social mammal in the history of animals. No other mammal is so dependent on groups as large as human societies. Even pre-civilization, we had 150 people in a given unit of humans, which is very high for 
a social mammal that's not a herd mammal, right? And so what happens is your brain associates that stimulus with the approval or affection or attention of other people, which means our brains are hopped up on dopamine all the time. Now, you might have heard dopamine is a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure, and that's wrong. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's associated with craving. So effectively what your smartphone is doing and your television and most of modern media is giving you a constant craving, like potato chips only make you hungrier, your phone stimulates without satisfying. Does this sound familiar to your lived experience, right? We all know what this is like. And what we're finding is this tendency towards distraction really messes up with how our brains were designed. We are not effective multitaskers. Neurologically speaking, women are better at multitasking than men because of part of their brain called the corpus callosum, which is a thick channel of nerves between the two hemispheres of the brain is much more active. Uh, to put it in uh, an, an analogy, uh, basically um, the two halves of men's brains talk to each other as little as possible. Like, you have to pick up the toothbrush so we can brush our teeth. Fine. Right? That's the internal dialogue of male brains. And then in women's brains, the corpus callosum, the two halves of the brain are like besties. They talk all the time. They know their wants and feelings and desires and what they may do later. And, and this really results in, neurologically speaking, women having a more detailed map of the world than men. But modern digital multitasking is just as bad for women as it is for men. Uh, so, well, <laughs> I don't know which is worse, like drinking and driving or texting and driving, right? Like we're, we're decent, decent drivers when we're unitasking, but we're, we're just insurance liabilities when multitasking. And your computer is training you to multitask all the time because you're in Excel or Word or PowerPoint or whatever software you do the thing in, and then Outlook or Gmail or whatever goes ding, and you go, oh, I got to see what message that is. And that's called a context switch. And context switching is really expensive in your brain. Your brain has trouble switching between tasks, and you lose some time. And one study showed especially on phones, it's bad enough on your computer, but when you context switch on your phone, I got an email, and then I check Facebook, and then I check Twitter, and then I look at Instagram, and then I play Candy Crush. Like this little, like what should be a five-second to 30-second switch ends up costing you as much as 15 minutes of productivity. So finally your brain goes, oh, wait, this TPS report is due at noon. And it switches back to the task, at which point what happens? Ding. So one, one way to enjoy Sabbath is to not candy crush Sabbath every five minutes. Uh, I have a really strict discipline. When I wake up in the morning, I don't check my email or my text messages or my Facebook, my phone, automatically goes into do not disturb at night, and I have to take it back out in the morning. So I get up, and I meditate, and then I have breakfast with my family, 
and I do some things, and I get dressed, and then finally, maybe, I look at my email. Although if it's a, if it's a day that's not a travel day, like when I'm home and I'm writing, I actually don't look at my email until lunchtime. I work all morning. I give my best time to my work, and then I let other people steal my attention. Do you see what I'm saying? So as much as you can narrow your focus not at Sabbath, it's great. Now here's the other thing I do. I take a Sabbath every 24 minutes for two minutes. So we, when we're unitasking, we can get in cognitive ruts, we get stuck. So I actually have a timer on my computer that at 24 minutes blacks my screen and I get up and walk or stretch for two minutes. And then I return to my computer. And when you only work in 20 to 25 minute spurts, you don't goof off as much because that timer's running down and you're afraid of running out of work time. You're tricking your brain into focus. So I'm taking a Sabbath like a couple of times an hour for two minutes. Now, when I get to actual Sabbath, which I do every week. Now, because I do what I do, most Saturdays I'm in airports. So when I get home, whatever day I get home starts my Sabbath. Phone goes on the nightstand and stays there. I don't keep my phone in my pocket. I don't keep my phone with me. And we focus as a family. My kids know. They hate it now. I come home because I'm like, guess what? All your devices in your rooms, they don't belong here. And you minimize distraction. And at first, when you take a cell phone Sabbath, it's maddening. Like, because your phone vibrates in your pocket and it's not even there. It's so weird because your brain's like, I need stimulation real bad. And uh, eventually you like finally, and that's the best part. I've actually thought about uh, getting rid of my iPhone, except it's such a good camera. It's the only reason like, I st- I'm thinking about just taking all the apps off of it and just, um, but uh, yeah, so Sabbath is all about returning to a state of focus and intent, and you just realize that you don't actually have very much willpower as, a, as an organism. So the best thing you can do is plan it to make it as easy on yourself as you can, and what I think and what a lot of studies validate is the best way to be intentional is to put your phone somewhere else. Mike, I'm April. Hey, April. Good to know a fellow United Methodist. Woohoo! Yes. So um, I have I, I have a similar background in terms of having coming come to faith as an adult in a very fundamentalist mm-hmm. uh, Bible study, and a few years later I ended up in seminary, as God would have it, and it was during my time in seminary that I really began to discover God in a new way, and it was really through the doctrine of the Trinity that really began to break that open in a way to discover a God that was community, a God that had this loving relationship. And that's really been like the core thing as I've headed into ministry and now I'm preaching about God in pulpits on Sundays. So my question for you, though, is as a person who's very logical and thinks about this, I mean, the Trinity could not be more <laughs> illogical. Um, I mean, it is the, the thing that I think is so helpful to so many people in my pastoral work, and yet it is so difficult to explain um, mm-hmm. outside of your personal experience. So mm-hmm. I'm just 
curious to hear what you would add of how you how do you make sense of that and how do you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and hopefully you'll give me permission to use whatever you say in my sermon on Sunday. So. Wow, no big deal, Science Mike. Could you make sense of the Trinity? That's me rolling up my sleeves. It doesn't work with a blazer. Um, so, I am a Christian, and I'm an empiricist. It's a philosophical term for people who only believe or make fact claims about things they can provide evidence for, and specifically, empiricists place confidence in a belief directly in proportion to the amount of evidence they have to support that belief. The amount of forensic evidence I have to support that God is a Trinitarian Godhead, three beings of a single essence, is uh, low. (laughs) It's very low. Uh, So how do I place myself, which by the way, there's a lot of things essential to Christian practice that I don't have a lot of evidence for. Uh, A virgin birth. I don't have a lot, like there's some people that wrote it down that believed it very strongly, but scientifically speaking, that's not a good way to make, like, no, this one time, like a woman by herself just brought an extra chromosome, well, it wasn't by herself, it was the creator of everything that no one can see, you know, brought this extra chromosome, and then she had a child who was also God. Like, that's a big claim, uh, and it's, we, you know, I mean, well, these guys in the first century wrote it down. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's a big, for an atheist, that's a big, big thing. Uh, of empty tomb resurrection. Like, for a while as an atheist, I was part of this, this, this group of people who were called mythicists, who were like, there never was a Jesus of Nazareth. There's not enough evidence. It turns out those people don't actually know jack about history because <laughs> historians got really mad or like, are you kidding me? We have more evidence for Jesus of Nazareth than Alexander the Great, and there's no Alexander the Great mythicists, right? Um, <laughs> So the controversial thing for empiricists is resurrection. And we're like, but people say they saw it and they wrote it down. And I get why that's like compelling to some people, but then other people wrote down that they saw Muhammad fly off from the planet of the earth on a winged horse. And we're like, nah, that one is not real. But (laughs) this empty tomb is. I love the really uncomfortable laugh of the people that haven't heard of me before. They're like, I did not know this was Richard Dawkins night. Like, from the stage, where's the tomatoes? People don't throw tomatoes anymore, do they? No, now they tweet. That's right. Hashtag. Um, So, what's the deal? How am I an empiricist who identifies as a Christian and actually believes Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I cheat. Uh, I'm a mystic. Now, there's, there's mystics in every faith tradition on earth. And the funny thing about mystics is, 
when religions and denominations are in conflict or even war with each other, the mystics keep talking to each other really consistently throughout history. Back in uh, the medieval ages when, uh, you know, us white people were just going crazy in Europe, just trying to destroy any sense of progress we'd made as a civilization, literally burning down our libraries. Like for a while, uh, the Arab world held on to the world's scholarship for us. It's why it's called algebra, or why so many stars have Arab names, because for a long time, the only people who were interested in learning were in the Middle East. But during that period of hostility between Islam and Christianity, the Jewish mystics and the Christian mystics and the Muslim mystics would all hang out. Now, they didn't abandon their traditions, but they all understood that there was something essential to God that went beyond all of our words. Now, I knew about mysticism as an atheist, and I was like, those people are idiots. <laughs> They're like, I can't explain it, so I just won't? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, you don't figure out how to turn sand into an iPhone just by appealing to mystery, right? Like, you don't put robots on Mars with an appeal to mystery, you do some science, like, you figure out what's the melting point of this and what's its resistance to electricity, and oh, by the way, what's electricity, right? Like this whole chain of events. But oddly enough, it is exactly because I am an empiricist that I am also a mystic. Because what I know about you that you might know about yourself, might not know, is that you, as far as we can tell in science, are 86 billion neurons telling themselves a story. That story is your consciousness. And absolutely nothing about your brain was designed to uncover truth. Nothing. Everything in you is designed to find food, shelter, uh, social comfort and community, sex, just the essentials. That's what your brain is for. And so you build a map of reality that has enough information for you to do those things successfully. Most of your brain is actually devoted to guessing how other people feel about you because that's important for human survival, right? What does this have to do with God? Well, in the same way you build a model of a dollar bill, Right now, close your eyes and picture a dollar bill. You can just see it, right? You can see it. But if I gave you all a sheet of paper and a pen and asked you to draw a dollar bill, your drawing would be terrible <laughs> because you don't actually have a photographic representation of a dollar bill. You have a model of it. You also, if I ask you to close your eyes and think about whoever raised you, mom, dad, a caregiver, you can picture that person because you have a model for them. And if I said to you, I brought the mic around to each person and said, why do you love that person? Over and over and over, people would go, uh. Now listen, spouses have been playing this trick on each other on anniversaries for centuries. <laughs> like, why do you love me? Uh, you're sleeping on the couch. But that inability to articulate that love is not a sign that the love is less real. 
but actually that in your brain, love isn't a linguistic experience. When we brain scan you and ask you to think about someone you love, your left temporal lobe, which is the part of the brain that processes languages, doesn't do anything. And oddly enough, when we scan the brains of people who believe in God and ask them to think about God, guess what happens in their left temporal lobe? Nothing. This is why when a skeptic says, so who is God anyway, you go, uh, it's because God in your brain is actually more sophisticated than language. Now, if given a few seconds, you can think and you can start to articulate what in your brain is a feeling and an experience. But an odd thing happens when you try to describe an experience that isn't linguistic in nature. You change it in your brain. So neuroscientists say that the only authentic expression of God to humans is to refuse to speak of God. Can you imagine? All this time, (laughs) the desert fathers and desert mothers who simply said, God can only be loved and through the love be known. That's not ridiculous, that's brain science. So when I contemplate this linguistic idea of a three-in-one God, one, a creator, a source of all, a ground of being, where everything comes from and where everything resides, And somehow, there's also a Christ, a reconciling force of God that from the beginning of creation has drawn all of creation back toward God. And then I also contemplate a spirit of God that dwells within every person in communion with the other parts of God, that the way God exists on a fundamental level is in relationship. It actually sounds a little bit like science. You exist in relationship to everything else around you, and I mean that literally. Without particle interactions from other gravitational bodies, you're in a state of quantum decoherence and don't exist. You only exist in relationship to other things, right? And this is nuts, because for a while I studied quantum mechanics, and they have this thing where you can send uh, subatomic particles in a wave slit experiment, and without an observer, an observer doesn't, this gets really murdered by Christians especially. People are like, oh, consciousness creates reality. No, (laughs) no. Observation creates reality, and observation is a particle exchange. It doesn't require consciousness. But either way, what makes uh, things act as particles instead of waves is observation. But a funny thing happens today in the wave-slit experiment, and someone tweeted me this. This is the way I know, and I then read about it. Scientists not only send subatomic particles, they've sent atoms, and then groups of atoms, and then chains of molecules with up to 100 atoms who, absent observation, enter that state of decoherence. They act like a wave instead of a particle. I can tell everyone's 100% with me right now. 100% everybody's like, that makes total sense. What I'm saying is, 
the stuff that makes you up exists in relationship to all the other stuff in the universe. So this mystical idea of contemplation of everything existing in relationship, it's very scientifically valid. Now, the idea of a Christ that's constantly reconciling us all back to God, it's a little tougher scientifically because in science, the moral arc of the universe bends toward entropy. Yes, entropy. Not, <laughs> sorry, some of you like Martin Luther King who said justice, right? <laughs> to say the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice is a very Christ-centered idea, but not a terribly scientific one. Scientifically speaking, the moral arc of the universe bends toward entropic heat death. <laughs> I really got to make that t-shirt. Um, <laughs> but my point is, in this world of science, we're given so many facts about reality. And frankly, science is better than any other system of testing human knowledge at telling us facts about reality. It's the best the best. If you look at the history of conflict between science and faith, it, we, we lose people of faith when we use our faith to make fact claims that go against science about reality, right? The earth is at the center of the universe, and we do some math and invent telescopes. It's like, uh, right, strike that. That's pretty off. Every time that's been the role. But Science doesn't give you any meaning for those facts at all. It doesn't try to, by design. Science can't make moral judgments. Science can't speak to beauty. Uh, Science can't tell you what to do with scientific insight. All science does is tell you facts. So I like to have something other than facts about reality. I like to have a sense of like why I'm here and what I'm doing and what I do with all those facts, like, is it ethical to split atoms in the middle of a population center? It's just science. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying science is evil. I'm saying science is completely morally neutral. It is utterly free. It is not immoral. It is amoral. It is only through philosophy, art, and dare I say faith, that we can attach meaning to all those facts. So the idea that God is constantly drawing back all of creation towards healing and wholeness, towards shalom in the Hebrew Bible is a matter of faith. And believing that, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, encouraged people to fight in the civil rights movement against truly impossible odds. Logically, the last thing you wanted to do was be in the civil rights movement. From a point of individual survival, it was better to keep your head down. And Martin Luther King can prove it because someone shot him. But this mystery that lives in a moral arc of the universe that bends towards justice created the inspiration for him and people like him to change the world. And my friends, I believe that is the best expression of Christianity, is when we believe God is drawing all towards healing, 
and it gives us the courage and the bravery to, against impossible odds, stand up for the right and dignity of every human on the planet. That's how we become the body of Christ that embodies the mystery of the Trinity. I just made all that up. <laughs> Got a scientific question for you. Um, I think you said something in one of your podcasts about artificial intelligence. Yes. And I think you said that you read the Wait But Why article about it. Read what? The Wait But Why yeah, of course, yeah, it. yeah, it's like my favorite blog. Yes, I just wanted to know, what's your personal take on it? Do you ever think there's going to be something like human-level artificial intelligence or even superhuman-level yeah. artificial intelligence? And if yes, when? Like, there's a spectrum when people think that's going to happen. <laughs> and Man, like Columbus. some say in like 20 years, others say it's never going to happen. Like, what's your, what's your take on it? Thanks. <laughs> Hey, Science Mike, explain the mystery of the Trinity. Hey, Science Mike, when are computers going to take over the world and be specific about the timeline? <laughs> oh, man, I'm in the wrong line of work. Let's catch everyone up, shall we? Because I'm assuming we don't have 400 AI enthusiasts in the room right now. That is merely a subset of some of us nerds who think passionately about when and how computers will get smarter than us. Uh, okay, you are a biological intelligence. I mean, assuming there's... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> some of you probably know the joke I was about to make, and I've just elected not to. So... Instead, I'm just going to say, we have a room full of biological intelligences. And according to the evolutionary theory, which describes how the diversity of life on this planet appeared, it does not explain where life came from. Tell your friends. It explains the diversity of life, evolution via natural selection. According to that, it took billions of years to go from single-celled organisms to primates that make iPhones, right? That's a very long arc. Um, and there's, <laughs> it is a really good image, primates that make iPhones. I'm super <laughs> fond of it. So that took billions of years. And if you look at digital intelligences, now you can estimate how much information a given brain can process using different scientific disciplines and estimates. And uh, computers started to think, they started to process information uh, in with a computer called ENIAC, the Electrical Numerical Integrator and Calculator, uh, back in WW2, right? And it was incredible, because ENIAC could calculate the arc of a ballistic projectile faster than a ballistic projectile could execute that arc. In other words, if you told it, like, we're going to shoot artillery, it could calculate the arc of the artillery shell faster than the artillery shell could travel that arc. It's pretty awesome, but it's actually not very hard math. It's not very hard math at all. There's a thing called Moore's Law that basically says computers get way faster, way faster than anything we've ever seen. 
And so in, since World War II, computers have gone from like literally less information processing than any organism ever to uh, beating us at chess and then Jeopardy and then AlphaGo, or excuse me, beating us at a game called Go using an algorithm called AlphaGo. Now, if you're like, wait, chess, Jeopardy, Go, that's really dumb. Why is that a high bar? In the game of Go, there are more possible moves than there are atoms in the universe. So the way computers like rock out at chess is they imagine like every possible game of chess. And so every move you play, they're like, I've seen that before. And they go ahead and make like the ideal counter move, right? They don't get tricked. They know every move you can make in a game of chess. But you can't do that in Go in the same way you can't imagine every possible Jeopardy question. Do you see what I'm saying? Computers have had to learn, more aptly be specifically taught by us, how to be intuitive. And Go is a game of intuition. And last year, I think it was, last year, a computer beat a human at Go for the first time, which, by the way, blew all of the most optimistic AI timelines in the world. Already, computers are better at knowing random stuff than we are. Like, Google has become <laughs> our memory. You know what I mean? Like, not just like how many calories are in a Snickers bar. I mean, that's one I search a lot, but maybe not you. Uh, how, many, how many calories are in a Snickers bar to like, what time's the piano recital? This is like how much we're depending on Google to remember things for us. And if you look at this arc, it just looks like, it looks like an exponential growth curve. And so it looks like, if that's true, computers will go from a little dumber than us to like thousands of times more intelligent than us in like a couple of hours once we get there. That's what has AI researchers freaked out. Because think about chimpanzees. We're like a lot smarter than chimpanzees. I mean, kind of. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm going to take a brief aside because this is amazing. Do you know that chimps who are known for being like really war-loving primates are statistically less likely to go to war than homo sapiens? When they line up on the field of battle and they count each other, chimps need a bigger differential in the size of groups for one group to invade and initiate a war than humans, humans will go to war with as little as a 1% difference in population sizes, which is a thing we call mutually assured destruction. Where it's like, we'll kill them, right? And chimps are like, wait, there's no sense both of us getting wiped out. <laughs> also, this is amazing. You can teach chimpanzees how to count from one to 10 in order, like with, with numerals. And then if you flash up one through 10 at random points on a monitor and then cover it with blocks, chimps can instantly go. And humans can't. Because we're actually slower at visual processing than chimpanzees and we have worse memory for numbers. <laughs> so anyway, but in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways we're more intelligent than chimps because as you know, they don't make iPhones. And <laughs> So what happens when computers have the same level of intelligence difference between us and chimpanzees? 
And if this exponential theory is correct, what happens when computers are as smart compared to us as we are compared to ants? We've never imagined such a thing, and it keeps the smartest members of our species awake at night. I have some hope here in a friend of mine called physics. I am not sure computers will continue to get faster so quickly. In fact, they already aren't. Because as we've reduced the size of microprocessor features smaller and smaller and smaller, not only is it difficult to manufacture them, but they produce so much heat they burn themselves up. Heat dissipation is a big problem for you too. This is, this is crazy. Do you know that you can't be rational and angry at the same time because it creates too much heat? Yeah, yeah. That's why seizures are dangerous. They turn on too much of the brain at once, and they can overheat your brain. So your brain, if your amygdala, which is fear and anger, is really, really active, your brain goes, we better keep the prefrontal cortex, which is focus, concentration, rational thinking, off right now so we don't overheat. And bird brains, we've discovered, can have six times as many neurons in a given amount of space as a human brain, but because of that, they have to be even smaller. And this is happening to computers. We can't keep making computer chips have so many processing features on them. And that's a problem for creating intelligence. There's another issue in that we don't actually understand where consciousness comes from. Like we have some really good theories, like 86 billion neurons telling a story to themselves. I came up with that one. And uh, sorry, I was really proud of it. It's my Twitter bio. So the question is, can we actually make a machine that thinks in a general purpose way, like a human brain does, because we don't understand the mechanism of action well enough? If we can create AI, the question is, can we create enough computational horsepower to run the code required to do it? I have no idea and neither does anybody else. So what do I think the right thing to do is? I think the effort spearheaded by people like Stephen Hawking, who's a smart dude. Like, I used to say that N.T. Wright, not used to, I do say that N.T. Wright is the Stephen Hawking of theology. Stephen Hawking is the Stephen Hawking of being Stephen Hawking. <laughs> and Elon Musk, who like Tesla, SpaceX, smart dude. Uh, they want to actually sign a treaty between governments that creates uh, legal binding for corporations and countries to be ethical in AI research to communicate significant findings. And I think this is like, like an issue presidential campaigns should actually be talking about. You know what I mean? Like if you let the nerds run presidential campaigning, <laughs> biggest issue. CO2 count in the atmosphere. Issue two, methane in the atmosphere. Issue three, mapping asteroids in the sky and learning how to manipulate them <laughs> so we don't get blown away by an asteroid like the dinosaurs. Issue four, AI. Issue five, like schools or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I just, I really want to see that campaign.
And like, like what bathroom people use, like, it's just not a thing nerds care about. So give me, I don't know, there's no data, I don't care. Uh, so, but I think it's, it's actually important for thoughtful people, like write your senator and say, we need an AI treaty. Now they're probably gonna delete your email. So I mean write them a letter on paper and mail it and then call them because the math they use for like what positions to support, emails and tweets are weighted very, very little and phone calls are weighted a lot, which by the way, this is amazing. Uh, I'm a member of something called the Planetary Society. That's right. CEO Bill Nye, what up? And what's the Planetary Society believe? It means it's important for humans to colonize other planets. We're a pretty fringe nerd group, and we got NASA's funding changed because a few thousand of us agreed to call Congress in the same 48-hour period. Like, it's that simple to pull the levers of democracy. So <laughs> maybe coordinate a few thousand people to call Congress at the same time, and we won't die at the hands of the Terminator. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you because um, I really appreciate you and your work, and I think you've made uh, a lot of us feel a little less awkward and uh, lonely in the world, um, especially those of us who are pastors and agnostics at least once a week. Um, <laughs> I like that. For, so, for my Sabbath, I'm an agnostic, right? Like, so, um, right, every Monday. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a dual part of this, and one part of it is um, I actually wonder how important is belief, how important is some of these stories that we tell ourselves, do we waste an exponential amount of energy? Oh. Um, because the second part has to do with what you were talking about earlier, your computer shuts down every 24 minutes. You put your iPhone away. There's practical steps that you take throughout the day to make yourself a more impactful, influential person. So, A, are we wasting time with too many of these stories that are somewhat irrelevant to our lives? Um, like, why did I spend three months studying Troy and then another four studying hell? And then, mm. just to not believe in it anymore. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Fire and then what are room. the practical, like, but... This kind of stuff, these disciplines, these daily practices and rhythms actually make us more impactful for the things we want to care about. Yes. So is it dumb to waste so much time thinking about these stories? Like religious stories or any stories? Creating stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, a really good question. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, if storytelling is a waste of time, Hollywood's in big trouble. Why, even in a recession... Do so many people go to the movies? Why is it when the economy gets worse, people watch more movies? Why? Why is Harry Potter so compelling? Right? It is awesome. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, like J.K. Rowling, she's sold a few books. Um, I remember I went to the launch of... Uh, the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, like the midnight release with my daughters. It was cool to go like with kids this time <laughs> and not be the creepy guy at the midnight Harry Potter release party. I was like, no, I got kids. This is legit. And I realized like that one night at that one store in Tallahassee, J. 
J.K. Rowling would sell more books than I would at my only book launch party in my hometown, and that in like 45 seconds, she was going to sell more books than I'll sell in my life, right? Like, A, that's awesome. Enjoy printing money. Um, But like, why are we so compelled by Harry Potter, right? Why are we so interested in this story of a boy who grew up without ever knowing his father, who, you know, like then went on to be incredibly brave and loving but still relatable, who ended up having an ultimate face-off against the embodiment of evil, wherein he sacrificed his life willingly and went to the afterlife only to return and vanquish evil for all time. Like, why is that story so compelling? And did J.K. Rowling waste her time writing it? Um, No. You're a storytelling animal. You don't care about facts. You don't. I don't care who you're voting for. You don't care about the facts. Right? Like, listen, we all know Trump voters don't care about the facts, right? And we all know that Hillary Clinton voters don't care about the facts. It's just the Gary Johnson, Jill Stein crowd who also does not care about the facts. How do we make these decisions? Stories. Stories. Stories change you more than anything else. Step one, read a story. In the story, the protagonist learns something. Most people within three weeks, if what the protagonist learned was impactful, will relay that information to someone else as if they learned it themselves, and they won't know what happened. Ooh, now we're listening, right? They did an experiment where they asked people, they gave people $20, and they asked people to hear a story about tobacco, right, smoking. Who knows the fact that smoking is bad for you? Literally everybody knows the fact, and yet people still smoke. They had three groups here. One group was told all the facts and figures about smoking, the health costs, the costs in the economy, the death rates, all these terrible pieces of information. Group two was told a story about a child whose father died from lung cancer because he smoked and were given no facts or figures. And group three was told the story with the information embedded within it. Now, a little trick, they took blood samples before and after this experiment, and they tracked the change in oxytocin in people's blood in the three groups. And at the end of the experiment, they were offered to give some percentage of their $20 to a charity that helped watch after kids were orphans, people who died from lung cancer, right? On average, 
Group one was the least compelled, and group three was the most compelled. A lot of people gave all their $20 back, right? And this group was actually closer to group three than group one, even though they got no facts or figures at all. They just heard a story. And what scientists found was the amount of money people gave was directly related to the shift in oxytocin in their blood. And the numbers didn't move the needle. So it was a waste of time to study stories. That's the only way to learn, grow, or change. Why are the Gospels so compelling? Because we hear stories of 12 people who simply didn't get it. Jesus, when you take over the world, can I sit at your right hand in the, uh, in the throne room? Like, they didn't mean in heaven, right? They meant like when you kick Caesar out of Judea, like, can I be seated at the right hand of you? Because that's the power, right? And Jesus is like, well, what you got to understand is the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that's put into bread. And they're like... Jesus, it's a real simple question, like right hand, <laughs> yes or no? Like, I'm kind of a single-issue voter here, right? Um, God, that was a really low blow. Uh, I don't plan these in advance. So Jesus only told stories. And if, if you want to change yourself or change other people, the only way to do it is to tell stories. The only way I believe to relate to God is through story. Like, I, I got so mad at Genesis for being bad cosmology. that I was like, Genesis, you're out. Get out of my life. Come on, a firmament. There's no firmament. There's not a series of discs or a dome around the earth that the light of heaven shines through as stars at night or water falls through during the day for rain. That's ridiculous, Genesis. Go home, you're drunk. <laughs> we all know that in the beginning there was a singularity that suddenly had a rapid cosmic inflation event and allowed the fundamental forces of physics to exist and eventually allowed hydrogen and helium to coalesce into clouds and disks that had enough gravity to overcome the strong nuclear force and create nuclear fusion, eventually created enough iron that those first stars exploded, created a supernova, created heavy elements, and duh, Earth, right? <laughs> but this story about an innocence that starts to go away when you learn there's evil in the world and then really starts to go when you realize you can have a part in it, this story of looking at a fruit that you know you shouldn't have, but it looks good anyway, like, boy, do I know what the serpent's whisper sounds like. I know what the serpent's whisper sounds like because the power of Genesis is not as a cosmological model, but as the basic understanding of how humanity relates to the divine, and struggles to be good instead of evil. I think the most valuable thing we can do is study, create, and share stories because it's the rubber that hits the road 
and how to live a good life. And not only does science tell that, but in the New Testament, when someone said to Jesus, what's the most important thing in all the law? You all know what Jesus said. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Mr. Tricky Pants goes, oh yeah, Mr. Rabbi, who's my neighbor? And what did Jesus do? He told a story about a Samaritan, a despised person who intervened for someone in need when the righteous would not and started the largest religion in human history and ultimately shaped Western civilization with a story. Hey, Mike, I'm Quincy. Um, my question, I'm going to go back to way back in the Ask Science Mike catalog. Um, okay, what's well, a follow-up? So back, you got a question about vaccinations way back when. Okay. And um, you responded that there were, uh, I think, three. You, you talked about, you know, the science was junk and against vaccinations. That, that was fine. I, I understood all your responses. But the science is just, just for, for the room. The science supports vaccinations are a good idea. And yeah, that's, right. yes. yeah, right. That the anti-vaxxers, their science was debunked. Right, that's yes. Um, but that sparked another que- question for me, and this doesn't have to tie to vaccinations, but it can if you want. Um, I'll do my best. <laughs> if maybe a fourth kind of philosophical argument is that are we, as a society, do we, do we work too hard to prevent death to... Ooh. Um, are we fighting too hard against you know, natural selection, so to speak? And I, a part of that is I'm wondering if maybe you have a science mic matrix rubric for how do I handle what, technolo- what bioethics technology is... Uh, is acceptable, and where are we going too far? In podcast land, you can't see that I lied down on the stage because I was like, we were talking before the event, they're like, how often do you get questions you never get? And I'm like, almost never. And then tonight it's like, well, everyone. <laughs> the ethics of death. Science does not answer questions of morality. Science can tell you how to delay death. It can tell you how to accelerate it, right? Science both created penicillin and gas chambers. So it's not a scientific question. It is an ethical one. My Understanding of ethics as a pragmatist is how do I preserve and respect the consent of others and how do I avoid volitionally contributing to suffering? It's as good as I've got. You might have a better system. I've thought about that a long time. That's as close as I can get to a pretty clear way to make ethical decisions most of the time. Now, it's not always simple. 
for all of the political heat around it, uh, I actually, for example, have tremendous empathy for both sides of the abortion debate. That's one hot-button issue that I'm actually like, you know what, this is a pretty good debate. There's a lot of other things I'm like, you guys are being ridiculous, but that one I, I get. In terms of life, then the question becomes, what actions don't produce unnecessary suffering? There is some suffering that's necessary. Um, I think your first heartbreak is pretty important, right? I think uh, banging your head while you learn to walk is important. You know what I mean? So I'm not talking about a life completely free of discomfort. I'm talking about sometimes my shoes aren't ethical because I wanted affordable shoes at Walmart, and so children work their fingers to the bone to make shoes, and I've just volitionally contributed to suffering. So when we talk about extending human life, sometimes we extend human lifespan without extending human health span. So we give people 10 years of misery that have never existed before, 20 years of misery that have never existed before. And I don't think that respects the sanctity of life. To, to maintain someone in a state of incredible suffering is tough. But I also think the burgeoning population in which aging is a part also plays a role in, in uh, some environmental catastrophe. Uh, also, millennials aren't nuts about the previous population boom from the boomers and the other Generation X. Because there's so many people that all the good jobs are taken, and uh, there's not enough boomer savings, so they just keep working, and <laughs> we keep, like, you know, making coffee or whatever. <laughs> and uh, it's just a tough dynamic. You said these are complicated issues. I would say, in general, I'm for anything that creates flourishing. I think, I think insulin is a great thing. You know what I mean? Uh, I have gout, and if I have a really bad gout flare-up, I can take, like, this pill, and, like, I don't have a really bad gout flare-up. I think that's awesome. Like, that's, that's good stuff. But we're going to face these issues like we've never faced before. Like, right now, we're working on these technologies that let blind people see and deaf people hear, which is amazing. But remember Moore's Law? What happens when fake eyes are better than real eyes? Who gets them then? They're pretty expensive, so what happens when rich people can afford better eyes? Are you kidding me? They already have better cars and bigger houses, and now they can read a novel lying on the floor across the room <laughs> just because they have more money? That's ridiculous. Okay, uh, deep brain electrical stimulation. Really good at presenting the symptoms of Parkinson's. Also appears to have the potential to help people focus with less effort and for longer periods of time. Brain surgery is expensive. So what's my simple answer to, my oh gosh, I don't know. Especially when my way of making ethical decisions isn't everybody else's. I am deeply concerned across the globe right now. We're losing the ability to carry on conversations with people who 
make different fundamental assumptions. Now, that's historically normal. That's historically normal. You look at most of human history, they disagree with us. What do we do? Kill them. Like, that was just, that wasn't controversial. Like, you know what I mean? Like, somebody, like, wore the wrong pants to a royal ball, and now Europe is engulfed in conflict, right? Um, That's a slight exaggeration, but only slight. But, but we went through a period where among power groups, there was dialogue and discourse, and as long as the people under the heel didn't complain, everything was fine. And so right now, we have this like simultaneous movement of marginalized and oppressed people have had quite enough thank you at precisely the same moment when traditionally powerful or privileged groups have lost the ability to have civil discourse, it's pretty scary, right? So, I think what we have to work toward in health issues, in environmental issues, and all these things, is how do we dismantle systems enough to let the disadvantaged groups reach equality, but not so much that we wipe out 99% of the human species, which is something I think about a lot, something I think about a whole lot. Like, what's the correlation between the rise of Trump, the Brexit, and nuclear proliferation um, that has the potential to render moot all sorts of things? Uh, so hopefully your problem is the one I wrestle with. What, how do we distribute food? How do we deal with advances in healthcare and not how do we deal with radiation fallout? Um, but I don't, I don't have like, so part of, my, part of my platform is like when you stump me, you stump me. And you stump me, I don't know how to make those decisions other than if we're reducing suffering, I say let's go. But we always have to be aware that sometimes when we reduce suffering in one context, we end up creating it somewhere else through unintended consequences, right? The Industrial Revolution amazing. Like it raised everyone's quality of living, everybody, and also might wipe out the species. You know what I mean? So we've always got to be aware that our actions can have these long trickle effects, and we are really famously a short-term focused species. We think about the next couple of years, next couple of minutes, I mean, honestly, like who's wondering what they're going to eat afterwards? Like, eat, right, like, like, here I am, one of the most talented communicators the world has ever seen, and you're thinking about, like, second dinner. And then, we, but if, we're, if, we really, if we really think long term, what do we think about? Our grandkids. After our grandkids, forget those people. Just forget them. You know what I mean? But health advances... Uh, asteroid prevention, the, the most substantive nuclear proliferation, global climate change, all those things are more than three-generation problems. And if we don't learn to fundamentally change the way human cognition functions, we're in real trouble. Hi, Mike. Uh, my name is Beth, and I have a question that's 
along the similar vein of ethics, but different. Uh, so my question is about the ethics of animal research in labs. Yeah. So I work at the University of Pittsburgh in a lab where we study molecular mechanisms of chemotherapeutics. Mm-hmm. And we breed mice, as is very common in my field, that have genetic mutations that cause cancer. And I'm, very, I'm deeply conflicted about this because it enables us to do experiments that we would have no other way of doing uh, that could potentially prevent all kinds of suffering and pain, right? Um, But at the same time, we're breeding animals, sentient creatures that we know will have short, painful lives. Uh, So how how do you approach that from an ethical standpoint? (laughs) Okay, no, seriously. Seriously. What's the deal with Columbus? <laughs> like, wow. No, you guys, no, no, no. You don't get to clap. Because here's what I expected. I'm in the Atlanta airport last night getting ready to come here. And I do this all the time. It's a really familiar procedure. And I get to the gate. And instead of calling, like, we're going to start pre-boarding now, the guy gets on the, the mic and just goes, O-H. And right, the whole, the whole exit, the whole gate just goes, I-O. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> like the moon, I-O? Like, is, that, is this like an astrophysics conference? And then he still hasn't called for boarding. And he goes, just so you know, if you're not a Buckeye, you can't get on this plane. <laughs> and I'm like, how are they going to check? Is there like... Do you carry, like, special Buckeye identification so you can board flights to Columbus? Like, this is a real weird thing. So I'm thinking, like, I'll get here and it's all football questions. Um, And instead you're like, hey, what's the mystery of the Trinity? When are computers going to take over? Like, what's ethical about the preservation of life? And also, can we test on animals when that produces suffering in order to prevent human suffering? Real simple football kind of stuff. Come on, Columbus. Wow. I am not thinking about anything as much as I've been thinking about that. We are really anthrocentric. So we've done this amazing thing uh, in that humans throughout our progression of civilization have made incredible moral progress. Do you know it used to be a fun thing at a pub to boil a cat in hot oil? That was just a thing like Friday night. What are we going to do? Cat boiling. Yeah! And today you do that and people like, some people laugh because laughter is like an emotional stress release valve. That's kind of where we think it came from evolutionarily speaking. But most people go, like the fact that I even referenced it makes me some kind of monster. Like it's that level of just moral disgust. And so, you know, we, we, keep, we keep expanding rights. We keep expanding basic human dignity. Uh, we went from monarchy here to we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. If you don't know what I'm doing, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm not sorry that I did it. I'm sorry you don't know because your life needs to expand. That's from a musical called Hamilton. And it is good. Good, like it, 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 it intersperses like the, 
the, the energy of an upstart country with like hip-hop culture. Oh, <laughs> man, I love that telling of American history. Anyway, I also, I don't know if you know this, I recently learned um, that James Madison wasn't black. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, it's really inside joke, but it's, it's, it's just go see it because they sing the Declaration of Independence. But we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, except like not all men. I mean, you know, not all men, not slaves, not like poor immigrants. By all men, we mean we hold these truths to be self-evident that all wealthy landowners are created equal, right? It's not as catchy, I'll admit it. And then we say, no, 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 no. No, it means all men, just not black men. And listen, listen, do you hear that? Do you hear that sound in the room? Right? And then we're like, no, but wait, it took a little while. But uh, then we did the 19th Amendment, which some people want to repeal. Um, that's a Twitter joke. We, but then we decide, you know what, women can, women can vote. It's not all men because the, the Constitution says what? We the, the people, not the men. It doesn't say we the men. It says we the people. But like not all the people because we've got Jim Crow. And then we realized that was really stupid. And so when you look back at where people are, you're like, those backward, oppressive, mouth-breathing idiots. Obviously, the right to human dignity is universal to all American citizens, (laughs) but not those Mexicans, right? Obviously, our security as a nation is much more important than schools in the Middle East. You know what I mean? They've got, like, they've got terrorists in that school. We've got to keep the country safe. Like, what is the future going to think about us when so far the overall movement of civilization has been to greater and greater personhood? But here's the problem. Neurology has a terrifying insight. Humans aren't that smart. I saw one experiment where if you show people the works of a single painter and then let them try to guess of two paintings which painting is by the painter whose three works they've seen, humans are way worse at that than pigeons. (laughs) It's not even close. You're terrible. Pigeons are the greatest art critics the world has ever seen. They're like, that's a Monet, doofus. That one's a forgery. Like, they perform better at that test than trained art critics. It's, this is real stuff. I didn't make this up. Pigeons see more colors than you do, and they have finer grain vision. They can see the individual brushstrokes, and so they judge the painting based on the painter's technique, which they can see and stupid humans can't. You heard me talk about chimpanzees, right? Chimpanzees are better at remembering numbers than we are. Dogs are better at reading human body language and emotions than people are, right? Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, like your dog is like a Zen Buddhist master meditator. Your dog knows nothing but presence. 
You know what I mean? Your dog's not like, Thursday. There was something Thursday. No, your dog is in this moment. Like, if you and your dog are outside, your dog's just, this is awesome! <laughs> and then, like, when you shut the door and you leave, the dog's like, we're doomed! And just present. It's not like they'll come back eventually. It's just like, they're gone forever. What's forever? Anyway. Pigs have a consciousness that incorporates space-time. Pigs can think about future events and experiments. Pigs. Do you know what else pigs are? Bacon. <laughs> so my daughter Macy, when she was little, her favorite animal was pigs. And I made the horrible mistake of one Saturday morning telling her bacon was pigs. And she quit eating bacon for like weeks. And then one Sunday morning, it was so funny and so tragic, she looks at a piece of bacon and she says, Pigs, I'm sorry. You're my favorite animal, but you're delicious. And it's the most human thing I've ever heard someone say. Mice and rats grieve when they lose one of their own. Mice and rats grieve the loss family members or friends. They grieve. But that's their mammals. They're smart. They're smart. Lobsters fight like hell when you try to put them in a pot of boiling water. If given the chance, lobsters will literally grab the top of the pot and fight with all their might to avoid being put in the boiling water. And once they arrive in that watery grave, many of them scream. What's ethical? What's moral? Who and what deserves legal protection? Is it moral that mice die so that I can have chemotherapy and live longer? I bet many people go, you know what, I'm not sure. Let me rephrase the question. Is it moral that mice die so that your children or your grandchildren get chemotherapy? Do you see how that changes the math for you? You've been given an impetus by your DNA. At all costs, protect those offspring. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful the way I take my daughter's hand to cross the street. It's less beautiful that I don't mind so much if someone else's kids are bombed so mine can be safe. And I'm starting to wonder if maybe it's less beautiful that I'd, I care about animal suffering until it involves the betterment of my children. There are no easy answers to these questions. But let me tell you as we end tonight, that I think the church has lost its way. That the church in America is known mainly for engaging a cultural war and a fight for political dominance instead of offering healing to the world. And in fact, instead of trying to decide what is moral 
and ethical and helpful in the most difficult questions facing the species? What if that's what we were obsessed with? What if we admitted that most situations are complicated and messy and difficult and that somehow we have to learn to live lives of love and meaning in a universe that is bent toward chaos? If we did that, would every news article be about how quickly young people are leaving the church? And for that matter, would we care? Would we care? What if we were so willing to offer grace and healing to the world as Christ did that we didn't even care if it cost us our churches? Because the mandate of the gospel is to die so that others may live, to lay down our lives as a source of healing. So Columbus, (laughs) you have quite genuinely brought me the hardest questions in the history of Ask Science Mike. So in return, that's right. So in return, I offer you the hardest benediction. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore and make Jesus known in this world by doing exactly what he did. May you, Columbus, be broken and poured out so that others may be healed. Thank you.